We're going to go tonight back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to continue on in this series, asking God to bless our homes, to um, work in them as we seek to live lives to the honor and glory of His kingdom. And last week, we began uh, this message entitled, The New Life Home. And it focuses here on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, uh, where Paul is applying uh, what he's spoken of in previous verses. In previous verses, Paul has focused on how we live the new life in Christ, that we put off the things of the old men, we renew our minds and the things of the Lord, and, and we put on the new man. It says there in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, and true righteousness and holiness. And the application of that comes here in verse 25 through the end of the chapter, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but let it rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word get, proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so tonight, in just a minute, we'll recover um, the three first ones that we looked at last week, and then we'll finish out the, this, the passage tonight uh, as we look at these things. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this this week, you know, how do we how do we look at this passage and think of this passage? I have this parallel. I mean, do you, in your life, do you have any what we might call bad habits in your life? And I'm sure if we thought about it or we thought back, we could identify some of these uh, social faux pas in our life. And, and many times as children, uh, we're taught to eliminate some of these things in our lives. Sometimes we don't see them till later in our lives uh, that we can live maybe what we would call a respectable life or one where we relate well to others in society around us. Um, and, and, and show good manners and mannerisms. But some of these habits, these bad habits that we pick up in our lives, we may still struggle with or realize in ourselves later in life, and it causes this ongoing battle to, to eliminate these things. And if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple and a follower of God, though you are regenerated, you still have some what we may call old man habits in your life. Uh, there is a way that your flesh wants to live, and it's a way that doesn't please the Lord. These things cannot be dealt with, though, by simply altering our behavior. You know, a lot of times when it comes to habits we may deal with in our lives, maybe you, um, you know, bite your fingernails or something like that. Uh, you can alter some behavior or some, put in some corrective measures. But, but when it comes to, to living out new life, in Jesus Christ, not about altering behavior. Instead, we must submit ourselves to the Lord, as Paul said, you put off and renew your mind in the Word of God and seek His help to put on the behaviors of the new man. And thankfully, Paul, through inspiration of God, has outlined for us a practical look at the new man. And here we continue to see the picture of the new life home as we see the behaviors of the old man that we must put away, the new behaviors of the new man we put on, and the reasons for these things. As we said last week, Christian homes are a proving ground for and should be the primary place where we display godly living. The way we live out godliness must begin in the, home, the, in the walls of our home. That's where we begin to prove these things out, to live them out, to show them to other people, and, and then 
uh, as we put them on display there, those things become ingrained in our hearts and our souls uh, through God's work in us. And then we should hopefully then take those things and use them in other places. I told you last time, this passage is a general Christian discipleship application passage to our lives. But I want to take a look at it from a specific angle in our homes. And so we've made some home applications out of this passage. But understand, the applications of this passage are quite broad, right? I mean, these just are general, this is what we do and don't do as Christians, and here's why we do it, uh, and here, here are the spiritual motivations for such a thing, why it's important to the Lord. And so let's recover very quickly here the first three things that we talked about last time. Number one, we talked about speaking truth in verse 25, where Paul there admonished us to put off lying. We talked about lying is a statement that's contrary to fact, exaggerating and embellishing the truth, or even by leaving out key information so as not to reveal the whole picture we wish someone not to know. And what we said is that lying goes against God's nature as the God of truth, and is instead the work of Satan, who is called in the Scriptures the father of lies. And so we are to put off lying, which is found so naturally and so readily in our old man. And in its place, Paul says we are to put on truth, because God deals exclusively in truth, so should we. God is the God of truth. He has given us his word of truth. And no matter what, we must resolve in God's strength and in God's help to tell the truth, even if that means we face consequences for such an action. Even if it means we have to have hard conversations with other people. Because telling the truth always paves the path to restoration. When something is wrong in our lives, when something uh, we, we've gone askew with other people, telling the truth paves the path to restoration of that relationship. The new man reflects God as an embracer and a speaker of the truth. And Paul said the reason because we do what, the reason why we do this is because there needs to be a proper function of the body of Christ. Now we're to speak truth with all people. But it's especially important that believers speak truth with one another. We talked about how the body, the parts of the body cannot function if they do not cooperate with one another. And Paul says here, we are members of one another. That means that we affect other people. That's true in a, in a church setting. Obviously, a local church is a, is a local manifestation of the universal body of Christ and, and we are members in this local church, one of another. We affect each other. But then it's also even much uh, true to a much greater extent in your home, especially if, if those in your home know Christ. You are members of one another in the body of Christ, um, but then also just because you're part of a family, that what, what you do and say affects other people there. And one of the greatest lies I told you last week that Satan will tell you is that your sin affects only you and no other, nobody else. But that's not true. It always affects other people. Paul then goes on in verses 26 and 27 to deal with this idea of righteous anger. And he tells us that we are to put off sinful anger. And in our sin, it's most often things that inconvenience us, oppose our plans, or keep us from getting our way that draw out our anger. And what we saw was that self-serving, self-defensive anger is never right And an angry home cannot be a godly home. We have to put away anger. Instead, those who know Christ handle their anger in a biblical way. Paul admonishes us to put on a righteous handling of these things. Paul admonishes us to keep short accounts when he says, Let not the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. He cautions us, to be careful to make these things right with other people, that, that we need to have rational, calm conversation of issues and hurts and wrongs in our lives. There needs to be a discussing of what has happened and why it happened and why it was wrong and a true confession of seeking of forgiveness by those who are involved. And in doing so, the third thing here we see under righteous anger is that we deny Satan. This is the reason why, neither, nor give place to the devil. 
Because Satan is extremely interested in you, even as a child of God, he is interested in making you ineffective for the work of the gospel. He is interested in your marriage. He is interested in your family. He is interested in your relationships that he may turn those things into things that would serve his purposes. And when you lash out in fleshly anger and do not address it, you are giving Satan a foothold in your life. And when you do not make this right, you're placing yourself more firmly in his grip. And I admonished us all that it doesn't matter how many people live in our home, we give Satan no quarter in our homes. We can't do that. The only way to do that, though, is to follow God in all things, to submit to the things of God, because that's the key to victory over Satan. I gave you that verse last week those, uh, in James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I reminded us that we love that second part of the verse, resist the devil, you know, resist the devil, he will flee from you. But you can't have that without submission to God. You can't have that with what we talked about, without what we talked about this morning when Jesus said that you must be willing to do the will of the Father in our lives. We have to submit ourselves to God and his word. And then lastly, last week, we looked at this idea of honest work in verse 28 where Paul says that we are to put off stealing because dishonesty is not the way of God. Disciples do not steal. In fact, Paul says very simply, steal no more. The salvation of one's soul, again here, results in altered outward behavior because we are to put off stealing and put on work. God expects his children to be hard workers. So we should approach our work as God's gift of provision to us. And everything we gain in life, whatever it may be that God blesses us with, should be gained honestly. And it should be gained with the goal of sharing those gifts with others. And Paul says that we're to put on work that is good. Christians should not be involved in things that don't please and honor the Lord. And then Paul says the motivation of this, of course, is to give to others. God promotes hard work that obeys him as a means to bless other people. We work hard looking for opportunities to bless others. And this, this is where we go against, again, the mindset of the flesh and the world. I mean, you'll find those in our world who don't know God who promote a hard work ethic, but it's to promote ourselves and to build ourselves up and to get a greater position so that we can enjoy this or that or we don't have to work or we can have this and all of these things. But God says we work hard so that we may bless other people with the fruits of our labor. If we truly believe God and follow what he says, then we're going to look for ways to give to others in his name. But we can only do that, however, if we've taken an honest approach to work. Because if we don't work, we have nothing to give. So that's one of the ways that God uses our work. And we see that blessing is available to those who will obey the Lord. Just a very quick overview to kind of catch you up where we are. Now let's spend the rest of the night looking at these last two things that Paul admonishes to us to and apply them to our homes in which we live today. Number four, in verses 29 and 30, Paul admonishes us to wholesome speech. Wholesome speech. Paul tells us here that we are to put off corrupt speech. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Paul moves again here to things that come from our lips. I mean, you just notice here uh, throughout these, this, these verses uh, how many times that comes up, right? So we are to speak truth to people. Um, in our anger, obviously, we deal with things in a right way or a wrong way by how we speak. Now here we talk about having wholesome speech and we're to put away those things that are corrupt. Disciples are to avoid the use of corrupt and and useless speech. That word corrupt here is a very picturesque word because it was used most often to describe rotten produce or rotten meat that made it useless. How many of you have ever been around rotten produce or rotten meat and thought, man, this is a great experience, right? It's never great, right? I am I enjoy listening to podcasts 
um, when I have time or when I'm just doing something else. And one of the things I love to listen to, there's a podcast, and there's these two old guys, they used to be from Boston, they talked about cars, okay? And I love to listen to the things that they talk about and the way that they... they advise people. It's a call-in show that people would call in and ask these questions about their cars and the problems they had. And one day, this guy called in, and he had a problem. The problem was he had a minivan, and he had taken it to the shop um, to get some body work done on it. Uh, but what he had done right before that is he had picked up a farm-fresh turkey. <coughs> and he left that turkey in his car for a week at the body shop. Now, you can imagine when he got that car back, right? I think the advice they gave him was basically to burn the car, right? Because it was so putrid inside that car when he got it back because it sat out in the sun and in the, in the, in the summer somewhere or, or, or whatever, and it had just rotted. Take that picture, and this is what Paul is saying. Put that kind of communication out of your life. That kind of communication that is corrupt and useless, and immediately we may think of some things that fit into this category. You understand, there are words that our society in its sin recognizes are pretty nasty, filthy words. Now, unfortunately, those words are becoming much more commonplace in our, in our everyday lives as our world and our culture continues to, to decay in sin. But these words should never be accepted in the mouths of those who seek to lead godly lives. But I would take it a step further. These words and these phrases and these, these, these corrupt things should not be present in the minds even because the mind is just a moment from the lips. We must be very careful what things go through our heads in those moments. Should you find such communication near the door of your lips or on the tip of your mind in a very bad situation, I would tell you it's time to take a look at your heart. When you are frustrated, when something comes up, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? That right there is what's going on right here. That nasty thought, that nasty word that, oh, I wish I could say that. Well, you just said it, my friend. And I'll tell you what happens. What happens is we tolerate these types of words, this filthy communication, in our entertainment choices. My friend, if you watch a movie laced with this type of profanity, don't be surprised if it slips its way into your mind and your vocabulary because you're just filling your heart with it. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It won't affect me. It will. It does quite often. You'll find these things alarmingly close at hand in your own vocabulary thoughts the more you take them in. Now let's take it a step further. Because with this corrupt communication, the idea also is that it's not just, just foul and rotten, but it's also then that it's, that it's useless. The only, um, the only exception to this, okay, and, and this, is where your communi- this is where the illustration breaks down, I understand, is obviously when your bananas go bad, apparently they only, then that's the time to use them for banana bread. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? Um, but this is useless meat or fruit that's gone bad, and so let's talk about useless communication. Sometimes we are with others who take a sinful stance on such communication. You know, maybe you're not one who's using filthy, nasty language, but, but you're in a setting where you have the ability and, and the place to say something and be courteous about it, but you say nothing. Just hoping, now oh, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't really want to take a stand on this. And so you just, you're quiet and you just go along. And in that moment, your silence means approval of what's, what's being said. Now, I get it. Sinners are going to sin. It's not our job to go around and impose some righteous super standards on those who, who sin. But I'm talking about there are many times we're in, a, we're in a situation where we're in control and we can have a say in what's right and what's wrong or what we're going to tolerate or not tolerate or say and not say. And we should stand up and say, hey, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't use that type of language when we're, when we're doing this here. You're not telling them they have to change their life because they may not know the Lord. And so what they need is, is God. But you can use that moment to take a stand for God and say, hey, there's a right and there's a wrong here. And how I, what, what God's done in my heart has made an impact on the way I live my life. But then still, 
there are other types of useless or worthless speech to be on the lookout for. Can I just mention one of these things? I'm sure we could run down a bunch of different ideas and and some things that would fit. But something I've noticed just as I've gone through my years as, as being, of being a pastor, it's one I struggle with in my own life, and I see it a lot in families, is this idea of sarcasm. You know, I would just tell you, be very careful about how you use sarcasm in the, in, in the lives of the people around you. We must be very careful because it very easily crosses lines that are hard to come back from. And Proverbs says that the fool is one who speaks his mind and says, oh, I'm only joking. There's much truth that's spoken in jest. And we need to be very careful that our words are not useless towards other people in our homes. I would caution against a strong use of sarcasm because it is often used to cover up sin or excuse it away. Our speech and our methods of communication in our world have grown so much. I mean, we, we talk face-to-face, we talk on the phone, we, we message, we text, we email, we, and it really, words have become so voluminous in our society that we often think that words are just cheap fillers, but God expects his children to evaluate everything that they use in communication. It doesn't matter if it's spoken or typed, it's a representation to others of who we are. Every bit of communication God calls us into account for as his servants. So we have to be careful how we use those things. We have to be careful the words we say, the way we say them to other people. Because there's a lot of power in those things. We're to put off that which is corrupt. Then Paul says instead to replace it with that which is edifying. He says, continue on in verse 29, but what is good for necessary edification. So instead of such unworthy, crude talk, we should engage in that which is wholesome. And the main goal of our words is what? What does Paul say here? That we may do what to other people? Edify. Yep, or encourage is a good word for that. Because the idea behind edification is a building up of others that they may be suitable for the service of God. Edification is building up of others that may be suitable for the service of God. My youth pastor growing up used to always encourage us to be edifying towards other people in our lives. And so as a joke, to help us remember it, he would look at us and say, hey, edify, stupid, right? And we'd all laugh. But, you know, that was the idea, right? Hey, don't, don't be unwholesome towards other people, but edify, build them up in the Lord. Help them and encourage them. The things that we say in our homes should encourage other people in our homes to be better servants of the Lord. We do not bombard these other people with corrupt talk, but with that that helps them make, uh, grow in God. Now, this will also, in our lives, include correction. Parents, how many of you have ever had to correct something in the lives of your children, Right? Did you know that's a form of edification? Why? Because edification is building others up that they may be useful to the Lord. Now, if it's done in a godly way, correction is edification, building up that person to serve God in a greater way. So, if we were just to take this tonight, and we could probably spend a whole other half an hour on it, we won't. But if you're just to take this idea of not speaking corruptly, but instead speaking in a way that's edifying to people in your home, and judging solely by the way you speak to those in your own home, and how you speak it, are you reflecting Jesus Christ in the way you speak to other people? And sadly, this is another one of those places where I think we often give ourselves a pass. Well, if you knew my family the way I did then you would speak that way too. God says we're to speak edifyingly to one another. We often speak the worst to those we know the best. I'll tell you right now, the people who will see your hypocrisy are your family. They see it all day long. What, What you are at home and when you walk out into the world, 
If you're something else, our families see that. They recognize that. And that's probably one of the biggest things that we as Christians struggle with is this idea of hypocrisy. I mean, how many of you have ever met somebody and you say, hey, why don't you come to church sometime? And they say this to you. Well, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. You know what I like to say to people? Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Because I'm a hypocrite just like anybody else. That's not an excuse. That's a challenge to our hearts and lives. We say, God, I know I'm struggling with something. Maybe I haven't seen it yet, but I need you to work on my heart. I need you to show me these things. I need you to make me less and less of a hypocrite that I would reflect the work you've done in my life. So let us build up others in the Lord, beginning in our homes. And in so doing, here's what we, here's what we do with that. We're a conduit of God-pleasing grace. Paul gives us here the reason, the reason for these things. We, we put off the, 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 the rotten speech we put on, what is good to the use of edifying, that it, we may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ministering, what Paul says here is that we should be ministering grace to others and pleasing God with these things. If we speak appropriate words at appropriate times with the goal of edification, we can minister in a spirit of graciousness to others. That means that we need to learn to speak the truth in love to other people. There are times when we have all the truth in the world and not an ounce of love in our hearts. And you know what that results in? That results in what I call we just run people over with our truth trucks, right? We just boom. And you know what? You were right. You had the truth. You, you, you called that one like it was. But now you have this person laying here going, man, I just got whacked by a truth truck, right? We need to speak the truth, but we need to speak it with the love of God. You look at the life of Jesus. He spoke truth always. There were sometimes he spoke very hard things in truth. I mean, do you remember when Jesus called out Peter and what he said to him? When Peter, when Jesus was telling his disciples how he was going to die, right? The man, son of man would be delivered to be crucified. And Peter says, oh, that's not going to happen. May it never be. You need to stop speaking like that. What did Jesus say to Peter in that moment? Get thee behind me, Satan. What? <laughs> right? But he was speaking the truth to Peter in love, seeking to to pull him back into himself. That's a very hard truth he had to say to Peter, right? Jesus spoke the truth but gave it in grace and love. Now, speaking the truth in love does not mean we go soft on sin. But we find a way to communicate it in love. And in so doing... We are used by God to show his grace to others. Think about the ways that God deals with us and our sin. God lovingly convicts us of our sin. God's grace offers us hope and peace. God's grace then empowers and compels us to live for him. And yes, if we don't get things right, the God's conviction is going to get greater and greater and greater. And there may be greater and greater consequences for our sin, but he always always delivers it in his love and his compassion to us as his children. And as we minister God's grace through wholesome speech, we can be sure that we are pleasing the Lord. Speaking in unwholesome, corrupt ways brings shame to the name of God, and it grieves God. Paul says here in verse 30 that we are to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit resides in all believers. And when we choose sinful, useless talk, when we choose to speak in a corrupt way, this is one of those things that grieves the Holy Spirit. He is saddened and hurt by our choices to use our lives in such sinful ways. And Paul says 
that if we continue in such sin, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks then of quenching the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's another message for another night, but just the short of it is, in, in such cases, what we do is we forfeit the Spirit's power and His blessing in our lives because we're not submitting ourselves to Him. But, and these are available, the Spirit's power and His blessing and His guidance in our lives, those things are available and readily there for those who live in obedience to God. So therefore, let us speak wholesomely that we may reflect God's grace and enjoy the fullest fellowship we may have with him through his spirit. And last night, and one that we'll spend a good bit of time here on because there's a lot to cover here, in verses 31 and 32, Paul says that in our lives we should be putting on, and I just kind of call them godly tendencies in our lives. The first thing we need to do, though, is put off what I call, again, natural vices. And by natural, I mean those things that come common to the old man, the natural man, the sinful man. Paul says in verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So let's work through this list. Because here are things that are common to all mankind as sinful humans that we're to do away with in our lives. And if you live in your flesh... And not controlled by the Spirit of God, you will find yourself easily living these things. And this list comprises exactly what a home life characterized by sin looks like. The first one on that list is bitterness. Bitterness is the harboring of grudges. It's the internalization of anger. And it, and, and it turns this hurt into resentment and brooding. And this bitterness can be harbored against another person, but they can also be harbored against God. And really, what bitterness does, bitterness begins to taint the personality of the person who's harboring that bitterness. I don't know if you've ever met someone that you would describe as a bitter person, but usually you describe it that way because it kind of just becomes part of who they are, honestly. It means that they don't deal kindly with other people. They always have an angle or an agenda that they're trying to push. And, and here's the thing. This is why it's so appealing to the old man. Because bitterness builds itself to us as revenge. That's the lie of bitterness. Hey, if you, if you do this, you'll be taking revenge on another person. It disguises itself as a way to make others pay for their wrongdoings. You hold on to this, and you'll make that person pay. However, it does nothing of the sort. Instead, all it does is eat away at the person who harbors the bitterness. If you continue to harbor the things that got, that those things that have been done to you that are wrong, it's just going to eat away at you from the inside out. And here's one that I have really... Over the last couple of years, as I've, as I've looked at this and, and, and talked with, with a lot of different people in my life, one that I, kind of shocked me as I looked at it, um, bitterness, if you live a life of bitterness, really manifests itself many times in what I call a victim mentality. You ever met someone in life who's a victim of everything? A lot of times there's a lot of bitterness behind that. Because, well, this didn't go my way, and that didn't go my way, and this and that. And they become a victim of their circumstances, and what they're doing is they're harboring bitterness in their life about these things. They say, you know, oh, look at me, and and all these awful things that have happened to me in my life. Bitterness is a really nasty thing, because if you're going to harbor a life of bitterness, you're never going to be able to live in the joy of the Lord. And when you meet a bitter person, it's such a striking experience. I mean, you might sit down with them the first or second, one of those first times you're talking to them, they really begin to unfold their life, and, and they say, look at all these horrible things that have happened to me, and they start listing all these things off, and, and you, out of compassion, like you begin to sympathize with them, and really, man, that's really, that's really awful. I mean, when did this happen to you, right? Because it sounds like it happened like three days ago. Well, you know, 15 years ago, this, and you just look at them and you say, I, What? I mean, it sounds like it happened yesterday. Why? Because that's bitterness. 
It's continually bringing these things up, callousing our hearts, making us live this over and over again. And my friend, that's, that's a horrible way to live. If we have this catalog of just everything that someone's done wrong in our lives, I mean, that's awful. That's what kills relationships. And Paul goes on to list a few more things here. And they kind of feed off of each other, but in the way they also stand alone. Paul says, secondly, wrath. We're to put away not only bitterness, but wrath. And, and wrath can sometimes come out of our bitterness. Wrath is an outburst of impassioned rage. It, it really is a violent anger that hijacks a person's senses and actions. And what it does is it yields control to sin, and one's person becomes the devil's conduit. I mean, you ever heard somebody, I just got so angry, I lost control, right? Or what do they say? They were seeing red. You ever heard that before? Folks, we're supposed to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Christians don't, we're not called to lose control in our anger. That does not characterize the life of a follower of God. Paul then goes on to mention anger. This is, the idea behind this is a smoldering internal feeling. It's, it's a settled feeling that moves into one's heart and it colors their view of life. And this is yet another in, instance of a sin that defines someone's life and their view of the world. We talked about last week dealing with our anger in a, in a biblical way. That Christians should never be one who's described as an angry person. Because we're then being described by sin, not by being a follower of God. And so we have to cautiously, cautiously guard our lives and seek God's help in these things. Paul then says, uh, let us put away clamor. Number four is clamor. Clamor is an outcry. And what it entails is yet again a loss of control. Our, our emotions and our sin should never have control over us with God's help. God's given us emotions. These things are very helpful. I mean, they're, they're good things if used in a godly way. But, and with God's help, we can be in control of these things and use them for him or deny using that which is sinful. And really, again, bitterness, wrath, and anger, if they're unchecked, lead to such clamorous outbursts. Yelling and screaming at each other. These things don't characterize a, a godly home. And, and again, folks, I feel like I have to say this because I, I just want to always continue to, to communicate, communicate God's grace to us in our lives. This is not, hey, if you do this, well, you're out of the kingdom. Okay, We're going to struggle with these things. But what I'm telling you is this shouldn't be the norm for Christian homes. This should not be the way we live our lives. And when we do deal with them, we go back to what Paul's talked about in, in dealing with anger, right? We deal with these things in a biblical way. We work through our sin. Fifth, Paul says we are to avoid evil speaking or slander. This is the ongoing defamation of another person. And again, it comes from the things that stack up before it. I mean, if you're bitter against someone, if you have wrath against someone and anger and clamor towards them, it's very easy then to begin speaking, speak slanderous things about that person. You tear people down because of the things that stack up in your heart. And often that's done when someone's not around, right? You speak behind their back, text somebody about someone else. Sometimes it's to their face, and there's no room for this in a home that wants to please God. Spouses do not tear one another down, assassinating their character. And again, we're not talking about dealing with sin, okay? This is not, well, I don't want to say anything, you know, bad, so I don't want to. No, no, that, that goes under the category of dealing with sin. This is, we're attacking this person. We're speaking against them maliciously, speaking out against them. You know, I think one of the ways that we see this in our homes is, is parents being disrespected by their children, not, not being honored by them the way God says. Listen, 
the open contradiction of a parent by a child needs to be called out and dealt with. Our children, if we're going to raise godly children, should not feel comfortable when we say, hey, you need to do this. No, and they speak right out against you. I'm not going to do that. That's sin. That's wrong. And this is, what, by the way, that's another one of those things that I think gets covered up a lot by sarcasm. Oh, I was just, I was just kidding. That's a big deal. If your mom or dad says, hey, this is what we're going to do, you don't blurt out degrading, disparaging remarks about those things. That is wrong. And it communicates a lot of questions about your feelings towards God and those he's placed in authority over you in your life. And lastly, Paul says, put away all malice. Malice is a general word for wickedness. I mean, it's just kind of this, you talk about the catch-all word, here it is at the end, right? In general, All practices of sin should be done away with. Things that define the sinful old man have no place in the life of a believer. Instead, we are to embrace in our lives godly virtues. So here, we're putting off uh, natural vices, is what I call them, and instead, we're to put on, in verse 32, godly tendencies. Now, how many of you have siblings in your life? Okay, now, how many of you learned at least the first part of Ephesians 4.32 at an early age? Be kind to one another. How many of you learned that? You know, you got to, okay, my kids are both like, yep, we've learned that verse. Because we're, that's, you know, that's one important thing, right? Be kind to one another. So instead of the things that were listed in verse 31, Paul lists three things that are to be found in the lives of believers. First is kindness and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another Kindness is the idea of pleasantness towards others. In the life of Jesus, we see his life was one that was characterized by kindness. Think about Jesus. He was spoken against, acted against, rejected, and more on a regular basis. I mean, how many times in seven chapters in the book of John have we read things that people said against Jesus or did against Jesus inaccurately and unspiritually judging him in these things. Yet he continues to deal kindly with those he came in contact with. I don't think kindness can be overrated. It is the premier display of godly compassion. I remember there was a girl in our youth group who wore this t-shirt a lot, and it said, kindness never goes out of style. And it was one of those, I don't know where she got it, but it, was, it really is a, a great message, right? And it should go beyond just being a great message. It's a godly thing that we should reflect in our attitudes towards other people, beginning especially with those in our home, we're going to show them kindness and the love of God. Second, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, tenderheartedness. The idea of tenderheartedness is having compassion towards other people. It communicates, really, feeling empathy for the needs of others. It is showing love towards others, helping them in their needs. The, our homes should be place, places where we help each other, not, ju- not push each other aside and leave others behind to struggle. I would say this, the Christian home shouldn't be the rat race where we try to get ahead. In a Christian home, we should find people working together to help one another. Lastly, Paul says we are to be forgiving of one another. Jesus communicated to his disciples that forgiven people are forgiving people. I did a, I preached a message here a couple years ago in our parables series on Matthew chapter 18, the very end of Matthew chapter 18, when Paul, when, uh, Paul Jesus dealt with or, or gave his, his um, disciples the parable of the unforgiving servant in response to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive someone? And what Jesus communicates there is forgiven people are forgiving people. We have been forgiven so much by God, how can we not forgive other people? This is perhaps one of the greatest mindsets we can take in order to avoid the sins that were listed in the previous verse. If we would forgive the wrongdoings of others against us, we would avoid bitterness, anger, wrath, 
clamor, evil speaking, malice. Instead, we would treat them with kindness and compassion. Now, forgiveness does not mean you become a doormat in life. Because remember, edification involves properly confronting sin. But we are able then to avoid bitterness in our lives even if we have outstanding sin done against us because we stand ready to forgive the broken soul because we've already given that to the Lord. We can live a spirit of forgiveness even if the reconciliation still needs to take place. Right? There may be people who have done wrong against us. They may live in our own homes. They may share the pew with us at church or be across the aisle. They may be in the house next door or down the street. But we can continue to show them the love and compassion of God because we said, God, this needs to be made right. You know it needs to be made right. But I'm going to live and show them the compassion, the tenderheartedness to forgive them. I've already given this a spirit of forgiveness even though it hasn't been made right yet. Because forgiveness is a choice. God chooses to forgive us in his grace. So we must choose to forgive others. You, still, you can practice forgiveness and still take a stand for truth. I've told people that. I've, I've dealt with many different people in my life over the years and had many different things said or done or this or that. Because, like any of us have, Right? And I've said to see people, hey, I do forgive you because God forgives us at the same time in the same breath said, but aren't you tired of doing this over and over again? Aren't you tired of, of the cycle that goes on in your life? Because I love you and I care about you. I forgive you, but I also want to help. I want to make this right. And that's a choice that only someone else in that position can make, Right? We've given it to God, and we've said, okay, God, this is what we're going to do. We're going to show your compassion. And as long as you're going to continue to air your laundry list of sins committed against you, you're never going to practice forgiveness, and you're going to have no rest in your soul. We are motivated, then, to do these things by who we must reflect. And that's what Paul finishes up the chapter with here in this section. He shows us that we must reflect Jesus Christ. He says, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And this is why we're talking about here those who have come to know Jesus Christ. God, through the work of Jesus, forgave us. He could have turned away in bitterness and wrath, but he looked on us with great compassion, and in so doing, he chose forgiveness and gave to us regeneration And when we choose the path of godly virtues in his strength, what we're doing is reflecting him to other people. Again, beginning with those with whom we live. This is the call of every disciple. I gave you this several sermons ago when we talked about preparing for launch, that the goal of every believer is to live a life that glorifies God. And we do that by reflecting God to others. We're not glorifying ourselves, but him who redeemed us. We can show others the greatness of our God by our attitudes and our actions towards them for him. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So our motivation is to, to, to magnify him. Christian homes are the proving ground for and should be the primary place we display godly living. Now, living the new life in your home begins as as any other place you live the new life. It begins at salvation, and it continues as you listen to and submit to the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life. The things that are listed in this passage that disciples put off and the disciples put on do not come to the natural man. They require divine empowerment. It requires the Holy Spirit. 
And if you're going to live this way, you must be filled with the mind of your Savior towards others. You must see your spouse, your children, your siblings, and fellow Christians, and everyone you come in contact with as those who are created in God's image and as objects of God's love. Only then can you live these things towards others. That person in your home that you struggle with in these things, they were made in the image of God, and they're an object of God's love. Right? I'm not talking about we look at people as objects, but they are a focus of the love of God. That guy who cut you off in traffic as you went through Beaverton and there was one car in front of you, he's an, he is a recipient of the love of God in his life. God loves him just as much as he loves you. The guy in the cubicle next to you, the person down the street from you, God loves them just as much as he loves you. And so we have to live these things just as God shows them to us. Harmony in our homes begins by being made into God's image. And if these things are things that you're struggling with in your home, there is help and there is hope in the gospel. You can find help from the Lord. Sometimes, maybe we need some extra discipleship from other believers to help us follow the Lord in greater obedience. But I would pray that our homes would be and would become places where God is reflected daily in the lives of those in them, showing his love and his light to other people. Our homes shouldn't just be different than, than others around us because we stop and we pray before a meal and our neighbors don't. Our homes should be different in the way that we treat them. Our homes should be different in how we talk to other people, in how we, in the tones we use, and the words we use, and the motivations for how we relate to others and how we deal with ourselves. That's what makes a home a new life home. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its direct application to our lives. We ask that you would get a hold of our hearts and our lives. Lord, tonight, Those that are here represent many homes in our community of Beaverton and Midland and Gladwin and beyond. And we ask that you would challenge our homes, our hearts tonight. That we would look for these things that so sneakily creep into our lives and are so nasty and can take over our hearts. And help us to renew our minds and the things of you that we can have homes that reflect the harmony of the gospel. Lord, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to struggle. We're going to be tempted to give up. Help us when we fail to rise up again, not in our own strength, but in yours. Remember that a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up, following after you, devoting our lives to you, that we may see greater victories won with your help. We ask that you give us a good week this week. Help us to serve you. Help us to uh, live in a way that honors you. In your name we pray. Amen.